Verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me, hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he hath glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. For you shall go out in joy, and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the fields shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, church. It's uh, good to be with you guys today. Uh, my name is Ian. I've had the chance to meet you. I have the privilege of being uh, one of the pastors here at the King's Church. And uh, how about the choir this morning? Huh? Hey, this is fun. I, uh, I may lose my voice by the end of uh, this service here. I've had a good time singing along with these guys and grateful uh, for them uh, serving us uh, well today. Uh, well, man, I'm really excited to jump into Isaiah 55 this morning. What a, a wonderful, glorious passage for us. I know I've been saying this a lot in our Isaiah series, but this has quickly become uh, one of my favorite chapters as I've just kind of sat and meditated and uh, thought through uh, what the word of the Lord might have for us today. And as I've been uh, wrestling with this passage and preparing to preach it this week, uh, here's one of the thoughts that I've had that has kind of been recurring in my mind as we're uh, stepping into the world of Isaiah 55. Uh, there is a world of difference between knowing about God versus knowing God, isn't there? There's a world of difference between knowing things about the Lord versus actually knowing the Lord. Having not just head knowledge, but a firsthand experience of God's grace and kindness and character toward us in a relationship. You see, I think one of the dangers of the Christian life is a sort of detachment and a separation between our heads and our hearts while we consider the things of God. We can grow numb and cold and a little bit disengaged in our relationship with the Lord, all while we might be learning true things about him. 
maybe an analogy will help us think about this. I've always found this helpful. Um, think about a vending machine. Okay, so uh, you go to the vending machine. Uh, I know now you just like tap your card or swipe it, but kids back in the day there were these things called quarters, right? So you you put the quarters into the vending machine, right? You pick out your Snickers and your Skittles or your Doritos or whatever healthy choice you want to get, right? You put that coin in there, and sometimes, and if we're honest, like 50% of the time, that coin it gets stuck, right? It gets stuck right there, and then you, in your anger and in your hangriness, right? You're like trying to slap the side of the vending machine, you're shaking it, you're kicking it, right? Trying to get that coin to drop down in there and register. Well, I think sometimes in our faith, that coin sometimes, so to speak, gets stuck up there, and it fails to drop down into our hearts. And I believe that Isaiah 55 is the kind of passage that wants that coin of knowing something about God to drop down into our hearts and to set our hearts ablaze by the Holy Spirit in faith and in repentance. You see, Isaiah 55 is the concluding section of this portion of the book of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 55. Remember, Isaiah is now prophesying to a people in the future in exile in Babylon. He's reminding them that he's going to breathe life back into them, that he's going to deliver them from exile, that though they are there, they are still his people, and he is still their God. And we get a glimpse here in Isaiah 55 that the Lord is so committed to his people and so committed to his promises that he will not stop until the whole world is made new and renewed until the very creation itself around us, as we're going to see, breaks forth into singing. And so this morning, as we consider that worldwide universal renewal of all things, we're invited to participate in that through faith and repentance. So here's our main idea today from this chapter. The Lord invites us to experience his lavish, generous grace by coming to him in repentance. The Lord invites us to experience his lavish, generous grace by coming to him in repentance. Let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Pray with me. Uh, Father, we thank you um, for this morning. Thank you for the chance to gather for worship with brothers and sisters, saints, and the household of God here uh, in this bar that on Sundays we come and turns into a church. Uh, Lord, we're grateful um, for the chance to be reminded this morning of who you are of your goodness, your grace, and I pray today that you would reawaken within us a faith that trusts you and you alone. May you remind us of your kindness towards us in Jesus Christ, and may that draw us to repentance. Holy Spirit, give us right now ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to respond to the good news that your word is pointing us to. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. As we walk through Isaiah 55, I want to take this kind of in two chunks. I want to look at first the invitation to come and be satisfied, and the second to return and be renewed. Let's begin with that invitation to come and be satisfied. I believe that the first part of this passage is an invitation from the Lord for his people to come to him in faith. And I've already hinted at it before, but I believe this passage is pointing us to the twin responses of the gospel, which is faith and repentance. These first five verses are going to point us to what faith looks like. So let's begin there back in Isaiah 55, verse 1. If you've got a copy of the scriptures, go there with me. The Lord says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. 
And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which does not satisfy? Your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. So what does faith look like? Well, it begins, first and foremost, with a summons from God himself. Listen, faith does not begin with you and I mustering something up within us. No, it begins with a call, an invitation from the Lord to come to him. The language here, it's, it's almost like a plea or a yell from a street vendor in a market square trying to get you to buy something. Have you ever been in like an open market, kind of open air market? Maybe you've been in another country where this is where people go and buy their food, right? There's lots of yelling and shouting and bartering and trying to get them to come buy your apples because your apples are better than their apples, right? You're trying to get people to come. And the Lord, in the same way, is yelling out into the marketplace in the streets of the world, but not in just a loud, manipulative way, but he is yelling out in a warm, comforting invitation to come to him and to feast and be satisfied. Now, if we look closely, this call that goes out into the world is addressed to two different groups of people. The first group shows up in verse 1. It's what we're going to call the needy, right? Come, everyone who thirsts, and he who has no money. These would be the have-nots of society, those who are destitute, poor, needy, hungry, and thirsty. And I believe the Lord starts here because these are the people who know their need for this feast. They know that they need provision. An invitation like this falls on hungry and thirsty souls, and they are ready to receive it. And as we'll see, this is not just a physical reality in this situation, but it's also an invitation to those who Jesus calls poor in spirit, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who know they are sinners and sufferers and need a Savior. To this group, the Lord simply invites them to come. They don't need to go scrounge up money. They don't need to go beg. They don't need to come and plead their case. They don't need to go to an ATM and work their way into this feast. No, they simply need to come. That's the first group. The second group, though, shows up in verse 2. You notice a slight shift there. It says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? You see, verse 2, the invitation goes out to what I'm going to call the self-sufficient. The self-sufficient. These would not be the have-nots of society. These would be the haves. And by the way, those of us in this part of the world, we are the haves, okay? We don't always identify with the needy, the destitute, the poor. The invitation goes out to all those who have money, but they're spending it looking for satisfaction in the wrong places. Those who have things and are trusting in those things, but they're leaving them hungry and thirsty. They're being spent in vain. And you and I know, and the scriptures would tell us that this is often the group that has the harder time receiving the invitation. Think of the interaction between Jesus and the rich young ruler, for example. You can look at that in Mark 10. This young man, morally upright, wealthy, successful, some kind of ruler and leader, would have been very impressive, comes up to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
And by the end of the interaction, Jesus tells this man to go and sell all that he has and give it to the poor. Not as a prescription for all that might follow Christ, but because for this man, money and possessions and clout had gripped his heart and were the obstacle to following Christ. But at the end of the interaction, this man, it says, went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Maybe in a more modern example, uh, John Rockefeller, who at one point in time had a net worth of 1% of the entire U.S. economy, okay, wealthy. He was once asked, how much is enough? And he famously replied, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. That, friends, by the way, is a danger, not just for the haves, but for the have-nots that think just a little bit more will satisfy. Just a little bit of more of whatever fill-in-the-blank is for you will quench my thirst and will solve my hunger. But it's C.S. Lewis who was warned, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. You see, we are far too easily pleased. The issue is not our desire, it's where we tend to find our satisfaction, where we find our joy, where we look for security and bread. Brothers and sisters, this passage is the Lord inviting us not merely to an intellectual knowledge or assent of his goodness. It's not inviting us to have a theory of his grace and kindness. No, instead, this is an invitation to a full-fledged experience with his lavish, generous grace, where the head knowledge drops down to the heart. He's offering us refreshment in the waters that will quench our thirst. He is offering us rich provision in the milk. He is offering us joy in the wine. And notice, this is not a soup kitchen kind of offer here. This is not an Easy Mac microwavable meal. This is not a 10-minute stovetop, the day got away from me, the kids are crazy, what are we doing for dinner kind of meal. No, this is the finest of banquets set before us. Because Jesus comes, and what does he offer? He says in John 10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I come that they may have life and life abundantly. The Lord lays out this rich banquet of his grace and his mercy, and he looks at us and he says, come, all you who are thirsty, come. Those of you who are hungry, come. Those of you who have no money, and come. Even those of you who got money and you're spending it on stuff that does not satisfy, come to the banquets. And here's the most incredible part. God's economy, it ain't like our economy. We are told to come and buy without money. Now, I don't know any economy in the history of humanity that operates like that, do you? But the good thing is God's economy does. And the reason why this works is because someone else has already paid the tab. The bill has already been paid in full. We are invited to feast and enjoy what someone else has purchased on our behalf. 
which means that you and I, we don't try to buy what's already been bought. It'd be like if I got a gift, if I got a new race car for my son Caleb, or new shoes for my daughter Maddie, and then they race to try to find a piggy bank to pay me back. No would miss that it is a grace upon grace. We are invited to the table not because we have been good, but because God has been gracious. What you bring to the table, the currency that we need in God's economy is need itself. The only currency we bring, the only thing that we need when we come to this table is an awareness of our need. Now, notice how we come to this feast. I don't know if you caught it there in verses 2 and 3. Let me read those again. Verse 2, it says, Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. You get the emphasis there? Three times, in three different ways, the Lord is saying, come to me by listening. By listening to my word. Listen diligently. Incline your ear. Hear that your soul may live. Friends, we are all seeking for something. We are all listening constantly to the offers in the market square of our world. We are inclining our ear in some direction. We are all hearing and processing an offer for satisfaction and fulfillment somewhere. And here, the Lord is beckoning us, listen to my voice. Trust my word and my promises. Delight in them. Now, this can't mean just a cursory glance every once in a while at it. We're to meditate on it, pour over it, Pray through it, marinate in the promises of God toward us. We are to open at night and day, morning and evening. And listen, I don't say any of that to make you or I feel guilty. That's not the tone of this passage, is it? It's an invitation. Come, listen to my word, because there is found joy and satisfaction. We, like Peter, look to Jesus as others walk away from him and say, Lord, to whom else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We come to the word saying the same thing over and over again. And then look what that word points to, addressed to a people in exile. Pick it up in verse 3. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples, Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you, because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. This seems to be one final pointer to the servant who's been the main focus of this section of Isaiah. As we listen to God's word, it ensures us and it reminds us of the everlasting covenant that God has made, promised through David. Remember that covenant back in 2 Samuel 7 is that someone in the line of David would come and they would reign over God's people, not just for a few years, not just for a decade, not for a century, not even for a millennium, but forever. Everlasting rule and reign. And for those who find themselves under that rule and reign of that messianic king who's to come, they will experience the blessing and the joy and the benefits of living in that everlasting covenant. 
This figure will be a witness to the people, be a king and a commander. And friends, we know that this has all been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, hasn't it? He is the servant of the Lord who comes as all of those things. And he is the one who lays before us a rich banquet table of grace and mercy and beckons us to come. It was Jesus who said in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now when Jesus there says, whoever comes to me in the Greek, that word whoever, it means whoever, anybody, any and all who want to come to him, your hunger will be dealt with, your thirst will be quenched. This invitation goes out to any and all who come to him empty-handed, only bringing their need, trusting in him in faith. I mean, he says here, the nations, which by the way is you and me, halfway around the world, 2,000 years later, plus whenever this promise is made. The nations, you and me, we're going to come running to the Lord, drawn in by the magnet of the grace of Jesus Christ. And one day we will be glorified with him. So friends, listen, I don't know what brought you here this morning. I don't know where you're at with the Lord. I don't know what your week-to-week struggle looks like. But listen to me. There is a banquet of grace laid before you. And the bill has already been paid. Jesus came, and in his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection three days later, has paid the tab in full. And he is extending the banquet before us. And he's saying, come, bring your need. Don't try to buy it. Just come with your need and trust and faith, and you will be satisfied. That's the offer before you today. So have you come to the banquet? And as we come, we return and are renewed. See, the second half of Isaiah 55 is the other side of that twin response to the gospel. We come in faith, but then we also come with repentance. And this is a reality because part of the reason why we are thirsty, why we are hungry, why we are dissatisfied with life is because, quite frankly, you and I, we're sinners, okay? Welcome to the party. We're all in this together. We're sinners, and it causes hunger. It causes thirst. It causes a dissatisfaction, which is why repentance must accompany this invitation. Look at verses 6 and 7. These are so helpful. It says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. I think these two verses give us a step-by-step roadmap for repentance. Listen, you and I, sometimes we confuse things, right? Step-by-step right here. Okay, let's walk through it. Step one of repentance. Seek and call upon the Lord. And we do so with urgency. Did you feel the urgency in the passage? Seek him while he may be found. And listen, that is right now. That's right now. Tomorrow is not promised. We do not know what the rest of today will bring. But right now, God says, seek me while I can be found. Isaiah 55 reminds us that he is not far off. He is near which, by the way, to a people in exile in Babylon, in a country that is not their own, in a home far, far away, they surely felt like the Lord was not near, that he was far off. Listen, you might be here today, and you might think the Lord is not near. 
he is far off. Look at what's going on in my life. Look at my suffering. Look at my struggles. But no, the Lord, friends, is near. Seek him while he can be found. This sounds like the urgency of Jesus, doesn't it? He comes on the scene in Mark 1, and the first words out of his mouth are this. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, what? Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is now. Paul in Acts 17, when he's preaching to Mars Hill and all the philosophers and sages of the day, he says, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now, how do we seek and call upon the Lord with that kind of urgency? What does that look like? Well, I think it's quite rare. C.S. Lewis has already warned we're far too easily satisfied. I would add that we're far too distracted most of the time to really urgently seek the Lord. But this is the start of repentance. I love how Ray Ortland describes this. He says, to seek the Lord is to stop dawdling, stop taking God easy, and become intentional about him, setting highest value on him, removing everything that keeps us from him, hearing his word without backtalk, opening up to his will with no preconditions. Seeking the Lord is a whole life realignment with Christ. We stop treating him as a religious garnish on the side. He becomes our continual feast, our defining center. And the time to move in his direction is now, right now. Repentance begins with a fresh sense of that urgency. And as we take him seriously, as he becomes our feast, as he becomes our center, then comes step two, which is to forsake our sins. Listen, while it is absolutely true that we come to the Lord just as we are, it is not to stay as we are. God meets us with his grace in our place of need, but he's not leaving us there. He's taking us somewhere. And when we come to him, we do so because we are fed up with ourselves. We're fed up with what this world offers. We're fed up with our way of living. We have sought satisfaction and fulfillment and identity in all sorts of places besides him. And he comes and says, turn away from those things. Forsake them. Repentance literally means a turn, a change of mind, a change of direction. We are to forsake all that we're clinging to that is not him in turn. And notice it includes, by the way, both our beliefs, and our behavior. It says there that the wicked should forsake his way and the unrighteous his thoughts. It is both belief and behavior. Half-hearted repentance, which let's be honest, you and I, we're really good at half-hearted repentance. Just focuses on one half, either just behaviors or just beliefs, but then we end up in the same cycle over and over again, don't we? Full repentance looks at both behavior and belief and puts them to death. It forsakes them. It declares them empty and powerless and to come up wanting. So we forsake all that we might believe that's false and all that we do that takes us away from the Lord. And as we forsake those things, number three, we return. We return. And notice what happens when we return. Brothers and sisters, this is why we repent. When we return to the Lord, what does it say that he meets us with? Compassion and a pardon, but not just any pardon, an abundance of pardon. I mean, honestly, can you believe that? Do you believe that's true? That us, wicked, unrighteous people, that when we come to the Lord with all of our baggage, all of our stuff, 
all the things that we've done sinfully, all the things we've thought about doing sinfully, all the beliefs that we've had that take us away from the Lord, do we really believe that if we come with all of that, that we are met with compassion and with a pardon that's abundant? The life of faith dares to believe that's true. I love how Dane Ortland describes this. We're just doing the Ortland family quotes today. He's from, this is from Gentle and Lowly. Listen to what he says. This promise is a profound consolation for us as we find ourselves time and again wandering away from the Father, looking for soul calm anywhere but in his embrace and instruction, returning to God in fresh contrition, however ashamed and disgusted with ourselves, he will not tepidly pardon. He will abundantly pardon. He does not merely accept us. He sweeps us up in his arms again. That is why we repent. That is the end of repentance, lest we ever forget. It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Now, you and I have a hard time believing that's true, don't we? Let's keep reading. Verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I don't know about you, but I've heard this quoted a whole lot in my life, and it usually is to describe God's mysterious province and his governing over the world, right? Things are going on, and we don't understand them. We're like, well, you know, his ways, they're higher than our ways, right? His thoughts, they're higher than our thoughts. He knows what's best. We'll trust that's what's going on. Nothing wrong with that, by the way. It's all truthful. But is that the context of this passage? There's two little words there. This is critical. You guys know how to read your Bibles, right? What does it say? For, as in what I just said has an implication that's coming right now. In what ways is the Lord higher than us? In what ways is he immeasurably different than us? Because he is, right? I mean, this is the holy, holy, holy Lord of Isaiah 6. But notice the four. He is different than us. He is higher than us in the way that he shows compassion. In the way that he pardons a guilty people. Listen, the Lord does not resemble you and me in this way. He is more merciful and gracious than you could imagine even in your wildest dreams and wants. It goes beyond that. The Lord does not resemble you and me in this way. Listen, we would look at him and say, man, that is reckless. I mean, that is unfair. I mean, more grace and mercy to this situation? I mean, you and I know how to hold a grudge, don't we? I mean, long-term grudges. But the Lord, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. We underestimate his kindness and his compassion. It's a parallel passage here in Psalm 103 that's almost verbatim. Listen to what it says. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As Richard Sibbs has said, he is far more ready to forgive than you are ready to sin. He is not like us. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And praise be to God. And again, we have a hard time believing that's true, don't we? Keep reading. For, there's that word again, for 
as the rain and snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The Lord has made this promise, and when we have a hard time believing that his grace and his mercy and his compassion keeps going, he says, and don't forget, I've promised it. In my word, it will accomplish what it's set out to accomplish. It will do what I purpose it to do. It is like the rain or snow, if you can imagine snow in another climate, right from heaven, coming down, nourishing the earth. It is bearing forth fruit. This is what God's word does. It plants the seeds of repentance in our hearts and then it waters it from heaven as a gift that will not return and what happens, it begins to bear fruit. God is inviting us once again to come back to him and to his word, to seek him and call upon him, to forsake our sins and return to him and receive compassion and an abundance of pardon. He has promised that is what has happened and his promises are sure. He has staked his word on it. It doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with you and me. Look at these last two verses. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord. An everlasting sign shall not be cut off. This passage ends with a hope for those in exile. When the captives are set free, they don't just like meander their way out, do they? No, you go forth in joy, in thanksgiving, in singing. We've been delivered and we now have peace and we rejoice. And this is what the Lord is offering to his people, but not just those who might be in Babylon, but to all of creation itself. Romans 8 says that creation is groaning, waiting the day of the redemption of the sons of God. The tree, in that day, the mountains and the hills are going to break forth in singing. The trees are going to clap along. They're probably going to clap on beats too. Creation itself is rolled up and renewed, and what do they do? They praise God. The symbols of the curse the thorns and the briars from Genesis are reversed. The curse is rolled back, and creation itself is renewed. Revival breaks forth amongst the mountains and the hills and the trees. Singing is taking place, and all of this is for the name of the Lord. You see, in ancient times, the conquerors would set up memorials to preserve their victory, to remind people in generations that is to come of what was accomplished. But the Lord, his memorial is the very transformation of the earth itself, which will forever be made right and will sing and praise and give glory to the Lord. There is a party awaiting all in the future, including creation itself, who come in faith and repentance. So listen, brothers and sisters, the invitation before us is clear. The Lord has laid before us a banquet table of mercy in grace. He invites those who are thirsty, those who are hungry, those who have no money, 
and those who have squandered what they do have on things that do not satisfy to come. Come to the table. Come to the Lord, who is rich in mercy, slow in anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Come in faith and repentance. Come and receive what has already been paid for. And as we do this, listen, you and I, we are preparing for the day when verse 12 and 13 break out. It'll be a day that we do not expect, but renewal for all things is coming. As you and I are renewed day by day, moment by moment, by this grace that is set before us, we are preparing ourselves and anybody we can tell for that day which is coming. So church, let's do exactly what the psalmist invites us to do. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Lord, you are good. You are good in ways above and beyond what we can even imagine or fathom. And so I pray as we consider your goodness that you would help us to taste and see, to come to you in faith and repentance, to be renewed as we do so, and to come with a posture of empty hands, nothing that we're bringing except our need for you, and may you meet us there once again with grace upon grace. Invite us into life and life abundant at this table. And Lord, as we believe in faith, as we repent toward that, may we be a witness of the good news that is to come, that you will not stop your work until the very ends of the universe have been made right. Help us trust your word. Help us listen diligently to it. Incline our ear. Hear it so that we may live. May you work out that good work in and through our church, we pray in Christ's name.